1: From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Michael Krasny. In his latest book, The Splendid and the Vile, author Eric Larson probes the extraordinary leadership of Winston Churchill during World War II as he tried to hold England together during a German bombing campaign that killed more than 40,000 people. The book spans 12 months, beginning in May 1940, with Churchill's first day as prime minister, just as Germany invaded Holland and Belgium. The best-selling author of In the Garden of Beasts and The Devil in the White City, Larson joins us to talk about Churchill's leadership and what lessons it holds for our current political climate. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In his most recent book, The Splendid and the Vile, author Eric Larson profiles Winston Churchill during his first year as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Larson, a best-selling nonfiction writer whose books include Devil in the White City, joins us now to talk about Churchill's leadership from taking office on the day Germany invaded Holland and Belgium to the way he's remembered today. And welcome back to Forum, Eric Larson.
2: Thank you very much. Good to be here.
1: Glad to have you with us. And let me just say, for the sake of listeners understanding what you've set out and accomplished here, this is not only a portrait of Prime Minister Churchill during that first year May 1940 to May 1941, but also of the Churchill family and also his first year as Prime Minister and the Blitz, uh, the air campaign, which takes us right to really what inspired you to write this book. It was an epiphany. You move from Seattle to New York and talk about what you reflected on in terms of, well, I think what you described as 57 9
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What happened is, I mean, this is one of those rare books where I can, I can you yeah, know, absolutely place the moment when the conception uh, arose. We had been living in, in Seattle for years and uh, our three daughters had all grown up as daughters do and they had moved off. Um, and we decided, you know, maybe it was time to, to move to a new locale. And I've always wanted to live in Manhattan. So we gave that a shot. We're still here. Um, but as soon as we arrived in Manhattan, I had this, this what I have described in, in, as, a, as a kind of an epiphany having to do with 9 11. You know, it's, when we were in Seattle, we experienced that the way you know, most Americans did, you know, uh, remotely, but, you know, in real time, watching CNN or, or some other source as the towers fell. It was horrific as it was. But when I arrived in New York, Um, I just it became so clear to me, vividly clear how much more traumatic 9-11 was to New Yorkers than it was to the rest of us. Um, You know, maybe that's sort of a dumb moment for people, but for me, it became just very, very clear. And I started to wonder, you know, how on earth did New Yorkers deal with it? And then I started to think, wait a minute, what about London, which in in effect during the peak of the Blitz had had 57 consecutive 9-11s? How did people actually cope with that? Um, so I started thinking about maybe doing a book that would try to get an answer to that question. Uh, I thought about doing, trying to find a typical London family, maybe at the Imperial War Museum in London, see if any diaries there might might provide that sort of thing. And I thought, wait a minute, why not do the quintessential London family, Churchill and his family, to see how they got through it. I mean, here's Churchill, he becomes prime minister on the day the war becomes a real war. You know, previously it was known as the the phony war, and there's a lot of death but it was not the the, the super hot war that began on the day he became prime minister how did they all endure this for that 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 first year which essentially coincided with with the german air campaign the most important german air campaign of the war so that's how it, that's how it came to be
1: well you gave us uh, provided us a very intimate portrait of the family and i want to talk with you about that but you also provided us a Rich historical experience uh, with all the sensory details that, uh, and, and stories, not only the Churchill family stories, but other stories that you gleaned from diaries and memoirs. Uh, it's a very novelistic book, uh, big on weather, I might add. And you didn't have I, I don't believe you had any kind of preconception about Churchill himself. You hadn't watched uh, The Crown or The Darkest Hour or you hadn't seen Lithgow or Oldham's interpretations of Churchill
2: yeah no no in fact in fact um, um really i came to i came to churchill um i think as perhaps as most of the readers who, who have enjoyed this book have, have came to him which is, is not a, not an expert at all i mean i knew i knew certain things about him but one thing i i really wanted to avoid was coming in with any sort of preconception of what churchill was like as a physical presence or as a you know, or, or or an audio presence, and so, I, so I really avoided watching any of the video representations of him, like The Crown or Darkest Hour. Um, and in fact, I only saw Darkest Hour when the book was just about done, and I was flying back from London on a British Air flight. Gosh, remember that that era? Anyway, I was flying back on a British Air flight. And I, uh, you know, I was sort of looking through what the video offering, uh, offerings were on the flight, and there was "Darkest Hour." So I thought, hey, you know, I'm out of the woods. I'll watch. So that was the first time I actually saw that this this the, that particular representation of him.
1: Yeah, we had Chris and Scott Thomas on the forum program who played Clementine. Uh, it was a small role, uh, but certainly a much bigger role, as I think you make us aware of uh, in his life and at this time than we saw in that movie. Interested in talking with you, though, Eric, about Churchill's leadership, particularly in light of the fact that uh, we had leadership that was quite divided for quite the last four years. I think it's fair to say, whatever your partisan politics may be uh, in terms of the country, uh, still very polarized and divided and divided even now during the pandemic when we need to rise to a certain level of unity. Somehow Churchill managed to bring these people into unity and this uh, book of yours is also a story about the resilience and the character of the people themselves, but talk about his leadership and talk about really what it's all about.
2: Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I never really intended this to become a, a, a book about leadership. And, and you know, in fact, it's not, I mean, what it is, is supposed to be an immersive, I feel an immersive experience and how people actually got through the day in, in, in that, in that, but it, it it really, in in the course of my work, I began to become a I became a big admirer of, of leadership of Churchill's leadership skills, um, whether he was born with them or learned them, I don't know, I can't say. But um, he did uh, he did some things that were when you, when you look at how he negotiated that that first year of his prime ministry. Um, one of the things that stands out always about Churchill is how how he delivered news to the public, how he spoke to the public, you know, and we're all familiar with his his great lines, you know, um, never before has had so many owed so much to so few that kind of thing. But I, I began to appreciate the, the, the subtler aspects of his speeches and, and how important those were as part of his as part of his palette, if you will, of leadership skills, you know, he would he would. He would begin his speeches. He would he, begin his speeches with a sober assessment of the reality of the situation. No happy talk. Nothing like you know it's going to go away. Um, a, a sober appraisal of what the situation was, because he understood something very important that that true leaders understand, and that is that the public knows, even though they may not know specific details of, of events and so forth. The public knows broadly what the situation is. You lie to him to them, you will set up a, a dissonant situation that will affect ultimately morale. So he would start his speeches with a, with a very, a very sober assessment of, of the situation, you know, not sugarcoating. Then he would follow up with, with real cause for optimism. You know what? What was there, perhaps, in the pipeline in terms of military force and so forth? What else was going on that 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 promised to help Britain out of the situation? And then, toward the end of the speech, or at the end, would come one of those one of those glowing moments where he would just get everybody to metaphorically sort of rise from their seats and and you know charge out into the streets to do battle with the Germans. Um, it was a very very important aspect of of, of how he managed to get people. To give people first of all to trust him and also to band together you know he he once said somebody once said to him well you you, know, you you gave people courage and and he said no i didn't i didn't give them courage i helped them find their own and that was very important
1: that was the soaring rhetoric that really instilled and inspired uh, people to i uh, i guess the best way to say it is um act I mean and feel that they were at one in acting he had a terrific grasp of history too as you point out in your book and he put citizens roles into that history in a remarkable way uh, we can certainly talk about you know the things that can take away from Hitler, from his um shall we say reputation and his leadership uh, he was a, a kind of a colonialist at heart and we could go into all those flaws and so forth but standing out as a leadership and also standing out as a resilience of the people and how they got through and there are lessons there too
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. But, let, but I want to go back to something you, you touched on about, about his his one other aspect of of, of his his oratorical um, uh, skills was that he had he had a way. He, he he was indeed very well read in in terms of the history of the world of the British Empire in particular, and he had a way of of putting his fitting his readers into the and his listeners into the grand story of British history, making them feel like they shared. They shared this grand story and they shared very importantly in, in how that story was ultimately going to work out. So that was a, a very important aspect. Yeah. You know, in terms of resilience, I mean, the, the, the one of the things that I was I was really impressed by going through my, my research was that was that, you know, the, 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 this this drive to just try to just try to live your life as best you could in the corners that. That were allowed, you know, when bombing wasn't occurring, and and there was a whole whole phase after, after the initial phase, after the Germans realized it was too costly to bomb by during the during the day, when bombings occurred at night, um, um, suddenly there was a, a, a weird kind of normalcy that settled over over the British Isles, and that is that. You know, from the hours of, for, for, during the daylight hours, um, uh, you, could, you could pretty much lead a normal life. It was after dark that when the bombing started that you had to make your choice. Do you go to a shelter? Do you go to the tube? Do you stay in your bed and pull the covers over your head, which, you know, some people just chose that as their, their, their option. Um, and so, so there was this, this, this sort, of, sort of weird kind of, kind of normalcy that settled in. And, and, and part of that had to do honestly with, with, with Churchill as well, because you know, it cuts to this idea of him, him helping people find their, their courage. Ch- Churchill was essentially fearless. Um, whenever there was an air raid, he was much more likely to climb to the, to the roof of the nearest building to watch than to duck into a shelter. And, and you know this 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 fearlessness is fearlessness is infectious. You know, I I, I I talk about him teaching the public the art of being fearless, and and I think I think that it, it really is the case that if you see your leader, if you see your leader constantly, not constantly, but you know, always reflecting a, a, a always demonstrating a, a real profound sense of courage and optimism, you're gonna you're gonna feel you're gonna feel the same way, and that was I think a very important thing that they did. There's a scene that I just, I just, I just love. I mean, there was a, a dinner party that Churchill was having in his, his armored, his armored apartment called the Annex, uh, 10 Downing Annex, um, uh, he was having this dinner party for himself, his wife, Clementine, um, uh, uh, one, one of the U.S. ambassadors. This was the U.S. ambassador, um, Tony, uh, I can't remember his last name, who was assigned to London to look after the exiled kings and so forth. Had it been driven from Europe by, by Hitler, um, other staff and so forth. So an air raid begins um, as they're having as they're having dinner. Of course, as one does, Churchill decides he's going to lead the entire party up to the rooftop to watch this raid unfold. So they go up through this series of you know, steps and, and, and ladders and so forth up to, the, up to the roof to watch this thing. And while they're on the roof, Churchill, Churchill is, is so smart, so, so well-read. Churchill quotes Tennyson, he quotes a poem called Locksley Hall. Which, when you read it, seems to seem to foretell. Sorry, Mr. Eric,
1: hold that thought. We've got to cut away for about a minute. We'll be right back. We'll hear about Oxley Hall and the poem. Stay tuned. More with Eric Larson when we return. His new book is out. It's a splendid in the vial
3: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is Eric Larson, and his new book is called The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. And we should mention that he will be one of the authors in the 32nd National Kidney Foundation Literary Luncheon, which I've been participating in for many years. This year, in the dinner the night before, Kelly Corrigan, my former student, will be the host of the luncheon, and Britt Bennett and Gail Sukiyama and a number of other authors will be there, John Grisham as well. And before we had to go to that break, um, Eric, sorry to say, uh, uh, the book came out in February, by the way, so uh, I want to make that clear that the book has been out for a while. In fact, uh, just a quick... note from a listener named Christine, who emails us. Thank you, Eric Larson, for helping me stay sane in 2020. The Splendid the Vile was my bedtime reading during those crazy first days of shelter in place. At a time when leadership has never been sorely lacking in America, it was immensely heartening to be reminded of the timeless leadership qualities of bravery, honesty, and true love of fellow men. So we go back to your story. I'm sorry to break into your narrative there, but you had us <laughs> on the roof.
2: Yeah, let me just finish that. Yeah, yeah. So 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 there there's uh, there's... Churchill and his the, the, the people who are attending his dinner party. He leads them up onto the roof during an air raid, so so they can they can watch. Um, and while he's up there, he 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 quotes Tennyson. He quotes a poem called "Locksley Hall." which um, when you read it does seem to foretell aerial, air, the advent of aerial warfare you know, long before there are even aircraft. And, and I just found that such a remarkable moment. I mean, not only does the guy have the composure to remember Tennyson you know, as, as bombers are flying over and parts of London are being obliterated, but he chooses that poem um, uh, you know, which seems to foretell what they're, what they're watching. So anyway, that was uh, one of my favorite little moments.
1: Yeah, and uh, you speak about it with that kind of favor that's uh, noticeable to me. Uh, also, we should mention that the title comes from one of his private secretaries, uh, John Colville's diary, uh, Bombing and Battles of the RAF and, and the Luftwaffe, uh, and an air raid that was also being watched by Colson and others. Again, Eric Larson is our guest. And by the way, if you would like to weigh in here, or if you have questions for Eric Larson, you want to talk about Churchill and leadership and Getting certainly the other side of Churchill from listeners, let me just uh, um, read, uh, well, some of them are coming in. Let me let me ask you to uh, weigh in here as listeners with any questions or comments you might have. And by the way, you can do that by talking to us on the phone at 866-733-6786. You can join us toll free and that's the number to call, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or Email us, forum at kqed.org. The email I was going to read, just the other side of Churchill, of course, that many have pointed out through the years, is from Paul, who writes, Winston Churchill participated in genocide in Pakistan and Sudan. He was a fan of the concentration camps set up by the Boers in South Africa. He pushed colonialism across the globe, was no friend of the Irish or the Kurds, and proclaimed the Aryan stock is bound to triumph. Let three million starve in Bengal his legacy of brutality and racism should not be forgotten. And I think Paul,
4: what's your name? Where are you calling from?
1: I'm sorry. Paul is, uh, is right. in many of those points, Eric Larson.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, look, look, Churchill, Churchill was uh, for all intents and purposes, um, essentially a 19th century imperialist with all the baggage that that, that that entails. Um, but he was in fact, without, um, I, I don't think anybody can dispute this. He was the man for the hour in this in this period in in in, in, in what is arguably British, Brit, Britain's darkest hour, um, at least before this pandemic. Um, so so, you know, attack him at will. I'm not going to I'm not going to disagree with you, but he was the man for the hour.
1: It's also a man who is uh, presented by you in a very multidimensional portrait. Uh, and, and I'm not only talking about good and evil here, which he certainly embodied, you know. Uh, he was larger than uh, than life in so many ways. But also the way you portray him, uh, there, there was a frivolous side that's unescapable, a fun side. Uh, you were talking about the uh, that, the dinner party that led up to the roof to the story you told. There was also dinner at Checkers in the Great Hall. And here comes... Winston Churchill in a one piece jumpsuit with his of his own design we ought to add and doing bayonet drills and singing all kinds of things from Gilbert and Sullivan and the wizard of Oz and run, yeah, rabbit well that, run. Well
2: that's, that's what, that's, 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 I think the, the, the biggest, the most surprising thing to me was how much fun Churchill was. Um, I mean, he was, he could be rude. He could be deeply inconsiderate. Um, uh uh, there is no question about that. But the, the reality is that his staff, his private secretaries, they all loved him um, because he could be an awful lot of fun. And he was intellectually so stimulating. And, and also, honestly, he was a very warm, compassionate guy um, when the opportunity arose. You know, he would he was not afraid to weep in public. Um, and that was something else that endeared the British public to him.
1: Something else I wanted to touch on with you when we're talking about the man and his character and his personality and, and certainly leadership is just the way he was able to woo. And I think that's the right verb, FDR. It was vital for the United States to get involved in the war to help Britain. And uh, he wooed him really never so, lo- no lover so ardent. Uh, it was a vital necessity. He said, I shall, I shall drag America in. And he did
2: well li- literally lit- literally uh, from from his from his first day or two as prime minister, he recognized the reality that Britain in his view, Britain could perhaps have 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 fought to a stalemate with with Germany, but could not have prevailed would not prevail without without the full participation of the United states and he set about on this 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 courtship that really very much. You know, metaphorically, is you know sort of like a, a a young man, you know, courting courting the love of his life, um, and he acknowledged that 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 courtship aspect later later on in in some in one of his uh, uh, one of his writings, but you know he did recognize this, um, and he set about in a very methodical way, to to try to lure America to lure FDR specifically into into I don't know into his into his Net if, if you will, and he succeeded, I mean he succeeded to a large extent, of course, in the end, it was the Japanese invasion of Pearl Harbor that brought America you know um, full full heartedly into into the war but um, but you know everything short of that was I uh, think thanks to churchill 's courtship
1: yeah, but you give us Harry Hopkins you know uttering those words from the Book of Ruth about you know uh, essentially, your people are my people, and we will go with you um, it 's actually yeah. very moving to think about. Uh, Let me go to a caller. Let's bring Will in as our first caller. Will, join us. You're on.
5: Mr. Larson, were you surprised that Winston Churchill lost the English general election in 1945?
2: Uh, Yeah. Well, you know, I I vaguely knew about it. But as I read into 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 details of it, I was I was really I was really shocked, you know, especially after after spending a year and uh, not spending a year, I spent four years on this book, but after dwelling in that one year of Churchill's prime ministry, in that first year um, um, and just, just appreciating his leadership skills and, and, and what he went through to bring to, to, you know, essentially save the British empire, if you will. Um, and then, you know, at the last minute, you know, when all the awards and honors should have been, you know, accruing to him, uh, he gets thrown out of office. But uh, you know, I shocked yes but I also I also understood it it was it was it was a change that the british seemed to need that from this from this warrior in charge you know he was he could be erratic he, he was always very energetic but he was he was just he was this warrior in charge of in charge of the war in charge of the empire and maybe now with the end in sight Um, I think the feeling was that, you know, something else was needed, maybe more stability, a steadier hand.
1: Again, we're talking with Eric Larson and his recent book is The Splendid and the Vile, A Saga of Churchill, Family, and Defiance During the Blitz. Here's Kevin. Kevin, join us. Welcome.
5: Uh, Good morning. Um, For all of uh, Churchill's grand uh, historical uh, image, uh, he had the exact wrong strategy for uh, the European thing. He wanted to avoid invading France, and he wanted to concentrate on the Mediterranean and saving his
2: empire. Oh yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Well, I don't know about if he wanted to concentrate on saving his empire per se, but I would agree with you that in terms of um, in terms of tactics and strategy, and I, I actually say that in the book that he was he was a, essentially a, he was a terrible terrible um, strategist, terrible terrible uh, tactician. Um, but what he was very good at. Was arousing arousing um, the, the the public to to stay, to say the course, to carry on as he said and to to bring forth their their courage. That was his biggest accomplishment.
1: I wonder what you thought of there, there was a a review of your book uh, by uh, Gerard de Groot of uh, St Andrews historian uh, in the Washington Post. He called you a superb storyteller, which I think is. <laughs> Indubitably true beyond any. Re- but then he kind of took you on on something. I'd like to get your response to it. Uh, he said that you um, seem to give the indication that Churchill was, uh, along with the upper class, leading the working class when the working class leading them into bravery and courage. When the working class, were brave and courageous to begin with. I think that was the gist of his his criticism. The real war, in fact, uh, he seemed to say, came out of the factories and came out of the workers who were the brave ones, not necessarily. Because they were instilled by Churchill, but because of their basic backbone, uh, i think i 'm giving a fair rendering of what he said
2: no you are I remember reading that I remember reading that review um, you know um, teach his own <laughs> it's that, that's that that 's his opinion um, uh, I, I spent four years immersed in that period and you know, I, 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 I have to disagree with him. Uh, I mean, yes, of course, there was a fundamental seam of courage there is in everybody, right? Um, but I have to feel that, I do feel and, and feel after, a, after my research that, that uh, he really did bring something forth. Um, maybe it was there to begin with, I don't know. But he really did bring something forth um, uh, through his demonstrated skills at, at, at leadership.
1: Well, he certainly, uh, you, you give us a German perspective, which I think is a very important part of your book. And uh, people like Goebbels couldn't believe, you know, his, uh, from their perspective, intransigence that he wouldn't come to the peace table.
2: Right, right. Yeah, they thought he was nuts. Hitler thought he was nuts. You know, but they're, that's they're... a kind of
1: leadership, too. I mean, people thought that uh, Trump was nuts and then other people said, well, you know, he, uh, uh, he acted nuts in some ways that maybe were to his advantage.
2: Okay, well, but if we're going to start talking about nuts, let's. <laughs> I don't even want to go there at the moment, but but you know, in talking about the the the, the appraisal of how the Germans appraised Churchill when I say when I say they thought thought him nuts. In other words, their their expectation was that Churchill would would confronted by the the you know the obvious might of of, of, of Germany that Churchill would obviously would would cave. That that you know, there's no question that he would want to come to the to the peace table which is which is actually what what hitler really did want in this this early period of the war hitler did not want to have an active enemy behind him when he pursued his his ambitions in the east in the soviet union and so forth um and so 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 hitler and 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 goebbels and and, and Goering, they were really surprised at at churchill's oh, backbone if you will um and and um you know, I think that was a very important part of his leadership also.
1: We also should mention here, I think, Eric, that uh, the RAF had air superiority. Goering promised to destroy them, of course, but there was great naval support that Britain had that Germany didn't have.
2: Well, are you talking about naval support or... or, or, or Na- uh,
1: naval support, yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, if you want to get into the... the, 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 the uh, how things were arrayed during this year in terms of the potential for invasion by Germany and so forth. You know, Churchill's appraisal, I think he was quite wise in this. His, his appraisal was that, that, that you know, there, there was certainly a a, a very a, a major threat that Germany would actually invade the British Isles soon after, soon after essentially, you know, taking over, taking over um, Western Europe. Um, there was a major concern about that, but he understood that, uh, that, the, that Britain had this powerful Navy and that Germany was actually weak on the Naval front, that, 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 you know, for Germany to pull off an invasion of the British Isles, it, it would first—it would have to involve an amphibious assault. and That was something that that he doubted that that Germany actually had the ability to do, um, unless unless the Germans somehow managed to attain air superiority. And this is where Churchill—you know—I I said that he's a terrible tactician and strategist, but in one area he was, and and. I don't want to emphasize the terrible part too much, but in one area, he was actually very, um, very astute. He immediately recognized that the most important thing was for, for, for the RAF to maintain air superiority over the British Isles. The only way to do that, he understood was to increase the production of fighter aircraft. Um, And in, in, you know, again day one he established a whole new ministry the ministry of aircraft production and put his his friend max beaverbrook uh max aiken uh, lord beaverbrook in charge of that uh, of that uh, of that new ministry a very controversial appointment in the view of many because beaverbrook was was you know very outspoken very uh, very caustic very uh, very abrasive but he turned out to be the man for that job as well uh, so churchill recognized early on that 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 the, it was absolutely crucial to produce as many fighters as possible, because it was the fighters who, would, who, would, who were capable of knocking down the German bombers. And it was the German bombers that you know, otherwise would have been you know, bombing the, the aircraft industries, bombing the airfields, and so forth, without, without any kind of resistance from, from, from the British. And if that had happened, if, the Brit- if Germany had achieved air security over, over Britain, Invasion would have been much more likely, whether or not uh, Britain had a powerful
3: Navy.
1: Yeah. You mentioned Lord Beaverbrook. Uh, I'm, I was struck by how many advisors uh, uh, Churchill had sort of similar to what Doris Kearns Goodwin said about Lincoln, uh, advisors who were not yes men or women, all men at that point. Certainly, uh, he kind of liked the conflict. And Beaverbrook, who had been a newspaper guy and went into Air, air Force uh, or aircraft production, actually resigned 14 times. Uh, and a lot of these advisors challenged Churchill, and that's that's an important part of leadership, too, I think. Uh, I, as I said, I thought of Doris Kearns Goodwin. Let me bring another caller in, though. Chuck wants to join us from Walnut Creek. Chuck, you're on. Good morning.
5: Uh, thank you, Michael. Um, Mr. Larson, uh, much has been written about uh, Churchill's prodigious alcohol consumption. I was wondering if your research uh, uh, confirmed, denied... Uh, that and does it play a, a role uh, in your book not a role but is it significant in your book
2: yeah yeah that's a very very interesting question I, I, I was fascinated by this in the course of the, my, my research um, I you know I think there there is at some remove there is a stereotypical perception of Churchill as being a drunk you know just just constant constantly drinking and so forth um, the, the story is actually a lot more complex than that, um, his staff, John Colville, uh, his private secretary, who is a, a character uh, i say character but a you know real life historical person running through the story, John Colville wrote in uh, his diary um, that that he had never seen Churchill impaired by by alcohol and it is absolutely true that alcohol his days were were infused if you will, with alcohol with, with he would begin the day uh, often with a with a, a, a whiskey and water, tiny amount of whiskey in a lot of water, and then would come lunch, which was of course you know champagne and wine and so forth, and then then there was dinner with more wine, more booze, more, and then afterwards there was more booze and so forth, but but Churchill seemed to uh, well, definitely at least in my as far as what I saw. He he really had it absolutely under control, and I think in some way he he was maybe consciously or unconsciously just sort of slightly sedating himself during the day, almost almost as if you know the way somebody today might take a little bit of Xanax you know to get through the the chaos of the pandemic or or, or something.
1: Well, he but, had depression. I mean, he was he called oh, it the black dog. He was constantly trying to do something about that depression, wasn't he? Of
2: depression; they, they tended to pass quite quickly. But he did have he did have bouts of depression. But back back to alcohol, he told Clementine something once that, that I think is, is is very important to know about his alcohol consumption. He told her he said she was she was briefly I guess on his case about drinking too much, and and he said to her, um, Clemmy, um, uh, I've taken a lot more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out.
1: Well, the real drinker may have been his son Randolph, who <laughs> we can talk about perhaps time permitting. Uh... Uh, who was not only a drinker, but a gambler and a kind of 'er ne'er-do-well. And I ought to mention that uh, there's a portrait, uh, kind of a portrait of the charming youngest daughter of Churchill in this book, too. It's all about the Churchill family, and it's about Churchill's leadership, and we'll take more of your calls when we return. We're talking to Eric Larson. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is Eric Larson. His recent book is called The Splendid and the Vile, A Saga of Churchill, Family, and Defiance During the Blitz. If you'd like to join us on the program and have some thoughts perhaps about Winston Churchill's legacy, give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. Here's a question from Suzanne in a tweet. Eric wants to know: Can Mr. Larson comment on Churchill's relationship with Stalin? I'm reading John Kelly's new book on Stalin, and this relationship is quite intriguing to me.
2: Yeah, you know, you know, uh, I am no expert on Churchill's relationship with Stalin. Stalin really came into the picture, sort of really toward toward the the, the, the much. At the end of the period that I was particularly interested in but but it, 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 it it's a it, it's a fascinating relationship very different than the relationship with with Roosevelt, um, uh, I, I, I think he saw he saw Stalin as As a potentially um, a dangerous foe in, 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 in Britain's future as opposed to like a, a lifelong ally. But he also recognized that uh, the value of, of, uh, of enlisting the aid of the Soviet Union as well. I, th- I think he said something to the effect that, you know, I, I, I'm going to botch that quote, so I'm not even going to try it. But yeah, no, he he recognized it was very important to have have Stalin as an ally, um, even though he really sort of had to hold his nose while doing it.
1: And here's Marty. Marty's our next caller. Marty, welcome.
2: Good
5: morning. Had there been no Pearl Harbor what would have brought America into the war, and was Churchill concerned about Lindbergh and his influence?
2: Well, I, okay, two questions. Was Churchill concerned about Lindbergh? No, no. I, I got no sense of that. Um, uh, uh, he was much more concerned uh, about uh, uh, about the, the the Duke of uh, you know the, the guy who married Wallace Simpson. Um, he was much more concerned about his his influence, frankly, but. Um, Tell me again, the first, the first question.
5: Had there been no Pearl Harbor, what would have brought America into the war?
2: Yeah, so, oh boy, that's, that's speculative history. And I have, I routinely vow never to engage in speculative history. However, it's a fascinating question. So, so here's, here's my thought, just, just firing from, from the hip. Um, Churchill, FDR was, FDR at heart favored intervention, Um, and and the big question was, when was that intervention going to happen? Um, The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor forced the issue. What else would have brought America in wholeheartedly? Hard to say hard to say maybe some other some other incident involving Japan it, it, again it's 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 very difficult to engage in speculative history but it's clear that that the forces of the world were sort of driving America toward war regardless and
1: well, let me thank Marty for his call and go right to another caller that's Robert Robert join us you're on the air
4: hi uh yeah I have uh, two questions for your guest um And it's with regards to that now famous speech that uh, Churchill gave, uh, you know, we shall go on in the end, we shall fight in France, we shall fight in the ground. I wanted to know, what was the reaction of the people, of the citizens of Britain at the time? And then what was the reaction of uh, the generals, uh, you know, the army personnel uh, at the time as well? Because it seems as though, like, they were very... You know what he says. We we will never surrender. That they were very fearful, but the the people were very motivated, and yeah, that's just my impression.
1: Yeah, Eric
2: Larson. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, first of all, reaction to the speech. The uh, interestingly, uh, the, the the Churchill's government was uh, the Ministry of Information was was really really interested in public opinion and and went to great lengths to try to to try to tap. Many, many different sources, even gossip r- reported by booksellers, um, to try to get a sense of how 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 the public was feeling about the war, what how how morale was, how people reacted to Churchill's speeches, and you know, not surprisingly, there were those who who were deeply concerned to hear Churchill talking about we shall fight and we shall never surrender. But overall, that particular speech, you know, the attitude that Churchill expressed, this 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 bold you know we're not gonna we're not gonna give up was very um uh very um uh very energizing for for the public it was it was a, a, a really exactly the thing that people needed to hear at that time um the general staff was also um, um totally uh, in, in his camp they happened not to have the forces to do it um uh you know having just been you know driven from from france but um no they were they, there was a very very much a sort of a warrior warrior confidence on the part of the military established. And this, this, that's, again, that's what, what I came across.
1: Well, speaking about that famous speech and uh, the attitude that Churchill had, could you tell that story about his daughter-in-law and the carving knife?
2: His daughter-in-law and the carving knife refreshed me.
1: Well, they were talking about what they would do if the uh, if the Nazis oh, she, came.
2: Yeah, okay. I, oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. 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 No. So, so, so um, uh, Churchill was Churchill was telling his daughter-in-law um, uh, Pamela, who was married to, married to Randolph, the what we believe was um, alcoholic, uh, or at least dependent on alcohol. Anyway, she was. He was talking about um, the importance of being able to, you know. To, to take out the Germans if they if they invade it. and she was expressing concern about you know what you know how how, how could you, you know, how could she she do that and, and he just said get a knife <laughs> you know, get a kitchen knife and take them out
1: a <laughs> carving knife yeah well there, you know some of these stories uh, that are punctuated in your book are, are really quite compelling and poignant uh, uh, drawn from not only the Churchill family obviously that's at the center of your book but other uh, things that come into play through the diaries and the wonderful research that you've done. Um, there's a young woman who, for example, decided that she didn't want to die a virgin.
2: Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love that. She was, um, yeah, see, again, this cuts to why I wrote this book in the first place. Uh, you know, I, it really the point was, and this is what made it, I, I think, actually quite quite fresh in terms of hit, hit, you know, Churchill's scholarship, was just how did people get by on a daily basis? And so this one woman um, was experiencing this, this this tremendous air raid, and and she was infatuated with this the, this this guy Rupert, and the raid was was so intense that she resolved that next day that she was going to cease being a virgin, and that Rupert was the guy who was going to do it for her, and, and she proceeded then to do it. But it's kind of a funny. I, I don't necessarily want to quote the quote the scene. I don't know what the moral standards are, of KQED, but um, it was a. I think it was it was hilarious, hilarious.
1: Well, the the gist of it was uh, it turned out to be not quite what she had uh, been led to believe it would be in terms of, uh, uh, shall we say, delight or pleasure or anything along those lines. Uh, I was struck by that story. I was also struck end, by, uh, excuse me, Eric, what were you saying? Sorry.
2: She said in the end that she'd frankly rather have a cigarette.
1: Yeah, right. Or, or watch a movie, I think. But yeah. the, um, there was also a story in there which resonates today. You hear... Stories of young uh, black men and boys being asked what do, you, particularly during some of the terrible tragedies that occurred, uh, murders uh, by police, uh, like in the case of George Floyd and so forth. Um, and they say, what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, alive. And that actually occurred in your book with the young boy who was asked that same question during the Blitz.
2: Exactly. That's that's what he was asked. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? yeah, alive. Yeah.
1: Um, Let me uh, bring another caller in. Nancy joins us next. Nancy,
4: welcome. Thank you. Um, Mr. Larson, this is one of the best books I have read in a long, long time. I love The Devil in the White City also, but this one was so wonderful, and I really appreciated all the weaving in of real people's diaries and Uh, real experiences, and a lot of people (laughs) – I read this with the book club, and some of the people didn't really understand where the information came from, and you did a fabulous job on that. I loved the – I thought the title of the book, I was thinking the splendid was Churchill, and the (laughs) vile was Hitler, and then I read the quote from Colville that said, about the bombing and how beautiful it was. It was splendid and vile. And uh, so I really, really, um, really thank you for this book. I think it's an amazing uh, achievement. Yeah, thank we, you. Thank uh, you. Uh,
1: thank you for the call. Uh, we'll go to another caller joining us. Liam. Liam, good morning.
5: Good morning. Uh, yeah, I'd like to hear the author's thoughts on uh, Churchill's decision to uh, sink the French fleet in um, Morocco, I think, Mers el Kabir. Uh, yep. I understand that the French tried to surrender, and yet uh, they, they were bottled up in the harbor, and the, the British Navy basically sunk the fleet there.
2: Yeah, that's that, that. That was one of the most, to me, one of the most moving um, uh, and and surprising moments. I I had actually known nothing about that before I got into the research, and it was it was it it was it was very first of all addressing that the, the French had tried to surrender. That is absolutely not the case. There there is um there is a, a very detailed um, collection of documents. Um, the tick-tock, if you will, about how how that whole situation unfolded, and it is clear that the French had, were definitely not planning to to uh, trying to surrender the fleet. They were trying to, they were actually trying to sneak out of that particular base and escape this this force Force H that had been sent by, by Churchill and the Admiralty to to uh, you know to win them over. The whole point actually wasn't was initially that. That this 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 naval force sent there to to, to the in the Mediterranean um, um, was to offer the French an opportunity to join with the British Navy against the Germans, and they they abjectly, they absolutely, um, with, uh, without caveat, rejected that that overture. Um, and so, ultimately, Churchill came through on his his ultimatum and and destroyed. Well, blew up one and sank one battleship at a cost of 1,100 men. Um, significant other damage to the French fleet, and it was for Churchill a very, very wrenching thing. He was an old navy man himself, and 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 he absolutely hated having having to do it. And I, I believe that I believe that that he hated having to do it. But anyway, that was a really remarkable thing. It was very important, um, uh, as it happens, in terms of. A, asserting to, to Hitler that Britain was serious, that Britain was serious, it was definitely going to stay in this war, but also asserting the same point to FDR, that Britain was a serious player, they were not just going just to cave and, 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 and under the, the, the threat of German domination. And so it was a very symbolic and powerful act in that respect.
1: There's a question from a listener named John who is curious to know your perspective on Churchill's views on British Jews particularly given the antisemitism of his son Randolph
2: yeah very 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 complicated views and 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 uh, you know I in, in the course of this this particular year I I don't even I, he doesn't even get into it I, there's no reference to to Jews or otherwise. But, but you know, uh, again, he, he was a very complicated guy. He could sound like an anti-Semite in one turn and the next thing you know, he, he sounds like he's exactly the opposite. So,
1: But his son was uh, not only anti-Semitic, as we said, kind of a ne'er-do-well. He's been in some strange comparisons to Hunter Biden. I don't know. Do you make anything out of that?
2: No, I, I have not heard those comparisons to Hunter Biden um, uh, at all. And, and, if, and, and if, if anybody has tried to compare um, uh, Randolph Churchill to Hunter Biden, I mean, they, they just obviously have no grasp of grasp of history or grasp of the story. I mean, Randolph Churchill was was an absolute uh, wasn't there do well. Um, he was a, he was a gambler. He was uh, he was, I think, dependent on alcohol. He was a philanderer. Um, He also actually had had certain talents in terms of uh, army public relations and so forth when he was stationed in in the Middle East. But there simply is no comparison between Biden and and Randolph. I don't even know what I I have nothing even to say about Hunter Biden. The the whole thing apparently, in my view, is a concoction of, of sort of right wingers who are trying to trying to change the flow of politics.
1: One thing about Randolph uh, Churchill, though, in terms of his gambling, his ineptitude at gambling was almost legendary, wasn't it?
2: Yes, yes. He, he, not only was he, was he a, a passionate gambler, he didn't know how to do it. So he, he ran up tremendous debts. And that ultimately is what caused the marriage to Pamela Churchill to, to blow up.
1: Can you also talk a bit uh, about Sarah Churchill? Because I think uh, it's pretty clear you were a bit charmed by her.
2: Uh, you, you, not, 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 not Sarah Churchill, Mary Churchill.
1: I mean, Mary Churchill, the younger daughter, yeah.
2: Yes, yeah, Mary. Um, yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Did it come through that clearly? Oh. Anyway, so yeah. Mary uh, Mary Churchill, um, I, was, I was very lucky to be granted access to her diary. There, there, she has this really comprehensive day-to-day diary, which is held by the Churchill Archive Center in, in Cambridge. But when I started the work on this book, that diary was not accessible to researchers. Not, not, not yet accessible. Um, and I asked, well, how is there any way I could I could get access? And the only way was to contact was to contact Mary's daughter, which I, I did. Um, I waited, you know, and not, you know, I didn't hear anything for for maybe three or four weeks. And I assumed, well, that was going to be a dead end. And then suddenly, I, I she granted me permission and and, and to, to, to read and use this diary. And it was a revelation to me because Mary, who was 17 at the start of the action in the book and eight, turns 18 um, uh, during the, in 1941, I mean, 19, yeah, 1941. Mary was an absolute charmer. She was very, very bright, very articulate. Um, her diary is a mix of astute political observations, warm reflections on her father but also and this is very important to me she was after all a 17 year old girl who wanted to have fun and she did have fun and she wrote about the fun that she had you know she'd talk about you know having going to dances at RAF bases and she makes several references and of course, in the course of 1940-41 to snogging in the hayloft um, so yeah so she was a, she was a real charmer I, I, I think she makes the book frankly
1: I think we're also uh, charmed by her as fathers of daughters. Uh, let me bring another caller aboard here. Bruce joins us next. Bruce, good morning.
5: Good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I um, read uh, David Irving's book based on Goebbels' diaries, and in there was an interesting thing about Churchill. They were, uh, the, Hitler and his staff were confounded by, by what they perceived as a Churchill's reluctance in the initial stages of the Battle of Britain to launch his air defenses against German air power and it gave the impression that that uh, Churchill was was sacrificing his people in order to build up support for his war and in in, in essence he was you know a warmonger. monger you're time.
1: talking about the same David Irving that's a Holocaust denier I guess aren't you
5: well you know um, regardless of of his His accusations about him, you know, I don't I don't actually think he's a Holocaust denier, but um, um, he he does uh, give a very uh, I mean, as a historian, um, he does give a very um, he goes for primary sources and 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 tries to do a, a, a true be true to, you know,
1: well, Bruce we've got he, seconds left let me get right wherever. to the heart of that warmonger churchill your thoughts Eric Larson, on that
2: i read i i read Goebbels diaries and and you know i did not get that, that sense that sense at all in terms of their perception of him and what he was trying to do and i and I, i'm sufficiently cognizant sufficiently aware of what the, what the situation actually was on the, on the ground and in the air in in britain during this period that that yeah you know, i i totally disagree with that 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 irving thesis
1: we got seconds left. Quick question from a listener who wants to know your favorite TV or movie portrayal of Churchill.
2: You know, I don't I don't have one. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I really don't. Um, I, uh, I, they're all honestly and, and this is not to take anything from from the actors or the directors or whatever. They're honestly so far off the mark um, of the, the, the real guy that it's I, I, I can't. Um, I I, I I can't even I can't even answer the question. That's 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 what I found as I was doing my research, and that's one reason I was so glad that I did not try to you know soak up all the all the the, the video representations of him.
1: Well, because to get I, the real picture, they're going to have to read your work, and I trust that they will. Always good to have you with us, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. This is great fun. Thanks.
1: That's Eric Larson. His book is The Splendid and the Vile. And we're here with you Monday through Friday, nine to eleven. Another hour of forum up ahead. Please stay safe.
4: with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.